Section 21 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G.K. Chesterton. At the Sign of the World's End, The Boycott and the Bolshevist, by G.K. Chesterton. It has been said that it is not easy to make a figure of speech go on all fours. And this is true even when the figure is itself a four-footed animal, such as a mad dog. Such a quadruped figures in a passage about France in a famous weekly paper of the pacifist sort, edited by that highly intelligent Tolstoyan, Mr. Massingham. And in this metaphor, the mad dog is rather a lame dog, of the sort that needs to be helped, if I may be so flippant, over the author's style. The passage runs, quote, We believe that the whole country is tired of these reiterated threats to play the mad dog. It is time to tell the French military party that if they are bent on cultivating the symptoms of hydrophobia, they will find themselves in the unenviable case of the infected animal. If they insist on rushing off to bite the Germans, the rest of Europe will, sooner or later, put them into quarantine. End quote. Now, I do not mention this metaphor here as a text for any discussion about French policy at the present moment. I do not here inquire how far a house dog must be mad if he barks to warn people that all the wolves of the forest have combined with all the wolves of the plains. I am not concerned with the foreign politics of the moment, but with the general ethics of the modern world, especially the world of Tolstoy and Mr. Massingham. I only take the metaphor as a text for some enquiry into their view of evil, their conception of resisting the devil, or, as they would say, the mad dog. Now if a Frenchman or any other foeman has cultivated the symptoms of hydrophobia and has realized too late that he is in the unenviable case of the infected animal, he will naturally be interested to know what that unenviable case may be. What do we in fact do with the mad dog? According to the writer's argument, we leave him alone. We boycott him and decline any social relations with him. We do not bow to the mad dog when we meet him in the high street. We go so far as to cut him and pass coldly on, like Beatrice Portinari refusing Dante her salutation. We make the mad dog feel he is not really one of us. He is not in our set. Nobody leaves cards at his kennel, and if he put up for the club, he would be blackballed. This seems, on the face of it, to be the Tolstoy and Massingham theory of the common treatment of mad dogs. But, as a fact, it is not a very common treatment of them. When the mad dog enters the club, he is generally blackballed in more abrupt fashion. He is, not to put too fine a point on it, shot. Which is a very shocking thing according to the theory of these writers. A thing we can thankfully leave to militarists and murderers, even as these Frenchmen. Nevertheless, the fact remains that if the French really did behave like mad dogs, or even if they really did behave like murderers, it would come at last to a question of shooting them like mad dogs or hanging them like murderers. And all the nonsense in Bedlam and Utopia has never found an escape from that necessity. What interests me here is the particular escape attempted in this particular passage. Now, what does the writer mean by the metaphor of putting the French in quarantine? Quarantine certainly means something, 
It means putting people in a particular place and forbidding and forcibly preventing their exit from it. Are we to draw a cordon of troops all round France and fight every Frenchman who tries to go abroad? When we so besieged two military empires, of which the militarists really had behaved like mad dogs, these Tolstoyans did not like it at all, and said it was a wicked thing called war. I think this cannot be what they mean by quarantine, nor can I seriously think that they mean the mere social ostracism already mentioned, the mere habit of not taking off our hat to any mad dog we may meet. There is only one practical thing they can possibly mean, and that is a matter of morality, and perhaps a new morality, about which I feel considerable curiosity. The only practical parallel to quarantine would be an economic boycott. In the case of the mad dog, in short, the only alternative to shooting him is shutting him up and starving him. Now I am so strangely constituted that I cannot see that starving a dog is more humane than shooting him. I am so darkened with sentimental superstitions that killing a living thing by slow starvation is one of the few things that I would not do, even to a mad dog. And I cannot for the life of me see why the humanitarians of the school of Tolstoy and Massingham should think the economic weapon any more humane than the military weapon. The economic weapon would certainly be cruel, granted that it would certainly be effective. I pass over for the moment the question of whether it ever would be effective, and even the fact that in the French case, it would almost certainly not be effective. By wisely neglecting industrial progress and preserving agricultural prosperity, France has largely escaped the degrading dependence which forbids a state to resent a massacre for fear of losing a market. The French have been enabled, in a sense quite special and literal, to fight for the independence of their country. But I am not arguing the French question here, nor does it necessarily arise out of my present text and topic. I am not even sure that the writers meant in this case to crush France by an economic boycott but I know that the same writers have often proposed to crush other countries with such a boycott. And they have always mentioned it with a most mysterious air of moral superiority, as if there were something merciful about this method as compared with the military method. It is this moral attitude of which I cannot make head or tail. I understand the Tolstoyan principle to be that we must only use moral force and not material force. But hunger is just as much of a material force as hitting people is a material force. Supposing both to be thorough and final, it is very much the more cruel of the two. It is also, I need hardly say, very much the more cowardly of the two. For by hypothesis, the man who shoots others does risk being shot, whereas the man who starves others does not risk being starved. I do not, in any case, admit that material methods are necessarily worse than moral methods. The man who raves and bullies by a sickbed is using moral force, and using it very villainously. The man who turns him out of the sick room is using material force, and a jolly good thing, too. These people seem to forget that not only can good be done by coercion, but evil can be done by suggestion, and even by persuasion. However, let us assume, for the sake of argument, that a thing is right if it is done by persuasion. But starvation is not persuasion. To lock a man up in a tower and leave him to die by inches 
is a process which we should hesitate even to describe as suggestion. The course obviously indicated by the principle of pacifism is to go on preaching to Monsieur Poincaré until he becomes a pacifist, in which case we have to look forward to rather long sermons. Now the moral matter which I here desire to have cleared up is at the bottom of many modern evils. The cosmopolitan conspirators who masquerade as Bolshevists, the alien financiers who support them in the money markets of the West, the worst type of moneylender who ruins a score of villages in Russia, the worst type of trust capitalist who breaks a score of businesses in America. All these sneaks and bullies have based all their moral repute upon this most amazing and mysterious principle of morals. The notion that so long as a thing is merely an economic action, it cannot be condemned, considered as an ethical action. They tell us repeatedly that the pen is mightier than the sword. We might be allowed to add that the pen is dirtier than the sword. The pen with which Bismarck wrote the M's forgery was dirtier than the dirtiest sabers of the Prussian guard. And the pen with which Trotsky signed the invitation to foreign capitalists to come in and freeze out the free peasantry was a very much filthier instrument than any instruments of torture used by yellow executioners or red guards. Half the men who have risen to financial dictatorship in the modern European quarrel have risen by destroying families and devastating homes. Only they have done it with bills instead of bombs, and policemen instead of soldiers. Anyone who likes may call this pacifism. Anyone who likes may call it peace. But it is as well that he should clearly understand that some of us do not admit that such pacifism has the faintest pretension to idealism or that such peace is in any sort of moral fashion superior to any sort of war. We do not think that men who starve dogs are any better than men who shoot them, nor do we think it a sign of hydrophobia that the dog should bite the hand that would steal his food, as much as the hand that would blow out his brains. And by way of making clear the final and catastrophic chasm between my own school and all modern and enlightened schools of morality, I may explain that in this matter, I am prepared even to exalt men to the same level as dogs. End of section 21.